this is Sarah from The Journey and welcome to another expert special. Now one of the things we're pretty proud here about here at The Journey is that when we talk about products that we recommend they are done purely based on the fact that we've tried and tested and these are our favourite things rather than motivated by any kind of advertising. Now this one is no exception. So we learned an awful lot about ovulation from our next conversation with the CEO of Fertility Focus, Robert Milnes, who has worked in female healthcare for the last 25 years. Now, what we do when we go through this podcast is to really bust some of the myths around ovulation. Um, I didn't know a number of things, for example, that I learned on this podcast all in order to help you get to know your body better, which is something we're really passionate about. Everyone is an individual, and obviously to help your journey from fertility to conception, um, and even thinking about into the menopause. So um, let's get going. Hi Rob, thank you so much for joining us here at The Journey. We're super, super happy to have you. It's a pleasure. So... Um, it's all about ovulation, of course. Um, can you give us, just for perhaps those people who are not totally familiar with it, just a little bit of a, an introduction on ovulation and why it matters so much? Yes, well, uh, up to 75% of women who um, struggle to conceive beyond six months will have some form of ovulatory disturbance. Um, and not knowing when you ovulate is the first start uh, really, in, in trying to understand uh, your the process by which you can conceive. Uh, and there are a number of ways in which you can find out when you ovulate. Um, and clearly knowing when you're going to ovulate in this particular cycle is also key because that helps with natural conception. Um, given that lots of women actually then need support for their ovulation in some way, um, either through medication or, or dietary change. Uh, it's really important that they understand not only what's happening in this current cycle, but over a period of time, which is uh, yeah, one of the reasons why we produce the, the Obisense product. Now, you talked about ovulatory disturbance. Now, um, would you say it's quite a common misconception that everybody ovulates at exactly the same time? And would you say, when you say disturbance, do you mean happening earlier, later, um, or not at all? Yes. So firstly, there, there is a common misconception that women will have a relatively regular 26 to 32 day cycle and that they will ovulate in the middle of that cycle. So if you have regular cycles, in actual fact, only 30% of women ovulate within the middle of the cycle. Uh, and there's a number of papers about that. The Wilcox paper is particularly important in having established that, in fact, there's no such thing as a, a nor an ovulatory norm. Um, there are something like 17% of women who will ovulate earlier than that. And then a considerable number of women, and we're, we're seeing this with our users in particular, um, up to 60, 70 percent of women who will ovulate more than two thirds of the way through their cycle. That is basically, you know, in the latter half of the cycle when you wouldn't expect that to be happening if, if there was such thing as a, a middle of the month norm. So every woman varies. Uh, what we found is that their ovulation is really unique to them. There's a, there's a sort of thumbprint, if you like, that each 
um, cycle pattern has for each woman. Um, and that's when they have normal, uh, regular cycles. If you have irregular cycles, of course, things get much harder. And it's, it's particularly true uh, of women with irregular cycles that they may actually not ovulate at the same time each month. Um, there's quite a deal of evidence to say that even if you have very regular cycles, um, then there will be a variability in the date, or sorry, the day, the cycle day upon which you will ovulate within each month. And that's, that's quite common. Uh, and that can be caused by a number of things, but it is a relatively normal thing to have uh, an ovulation which just occurs at a slightly different time each month, uh, whether you've got a normal length cycle pattern or just uh, variable lengths of pattern, cycle pattern. Yeah, I think that's something that most people are not quite fully aware of. I think most of us think that it's always the same time. And actually, it's certainly been a revelation for me to discover this. Now, when you say that a lot of people are ovulating during the latter half or the kind of two thirds of the way through that their cycle, can that actually be a problem in of itself or a signal of a problem? Well, it can. But I mean, the, the most fundamental point is that uh, most women, if they're uh, led to believe that they ovulate in the middle of the cycle because of our modern busy, busy lifestyles we're, we're not having sex every other day as recommended in order to maximize your chances of conception so lots of women lots of couples time um, their conception for a particular point in their cycle now if they're trying in the middle of a say a 28 day cycle there's a good chance that you'll miss ovulation sorry miss miss the chance of conception if your ovulation is two-thirds of the way through so that's just when you're normally trying to conceive and you, you still can conceive because you're ovulating regularly. A late ovulation in a cycle can be an indicator of a problem, um, but not necessarily. So the most common um, cycle problems where late ovulation occurs is polycystic ovaries or polycystic ovarian syndrome, for instance. Um, but really, it's not necessarily the sign of an issue. It's just the sign of your normality your particular normality as a woman uh, and therefore as a couple you need to try and conceive around that point now is it um the case and um, that if you are ovulating very early or very late that there can be an issue with the endometrial lining and therefore even if you're ovulating and timing sex in the right way there might be an issue with implantation uh yes particularly with um a much later ovulation. So what, one of the things that a gynecologist will look for is what's known as a short luteal phase. Uh, and many of your listeners may well have heard of that. And that's essentially if you have nine days or less between the point at which you ovulate and the onset of the next period, then the chances are that you, don't, you have insufficient both uh, endometrial development and progesterone in order to, to sustain a, an implantation. So that's the most, the most common cause of uh, miscarriages is, that can be seen is that particular issue uh, of the short luteal phase. So actually, if you get to know your cycle um, and your patterns, then this could be a good way of perhaps flagging up that you might have an issue. Sure. I mean, that, that, the good news is it can be treated, but that is an absolute surefire sign that you need uh, clinical intervention uh, because there is there is pretty much no way in which you're going to successfully sustain uh, a pregnancy through uh, the first trimester if you do if you do have that short luteal phase yeah that absolutely makes sense 
Now, um, how does Obusense work in particular versus other techniques? Because I'm sure you more than anyone knows that there are many, many, many different ways of actually working out when you're ovulating. And that in itself can be super confusing and overwhelming as, you know, someone who's looking to get pregnant. I mean, it's just a minefield. So can you talk to us a little bit about what's available and how Obusense works in a slightly different way and perhaps some of the reasons why it might be a better, you know, or more accurate tool to use or consider? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the fundamental difference with Obusense is that we're measuring uh, core body temperature internally using a vaginal sensor. And the advantage of that is it, it allows us to see the uh, progesterone rise. So effectively, as progesterone is released um, by the ovaries during the process of ovulation, that causes a rise in temperature. So we're able to see the rise in progesterone that is the direct result of ovulation, which you can't do with external temperature uh, and you can't do with uh, skin-based temperature either. So those are both very good at pinpointing whether you have ovulated or not, particularly if you have normal and regular ovulation, but they can't actually see what's happening in this current cycle. So that's the main difference with Obisense. So I've just talked about three different temperature measures, measurements, oral temperature, that's um, otherwise known as basal body temperature measurement. And that's where you take a single point of uh, temperature each morning on waking and you in the past you used to chart that manually on a chart and now of course there are lots of apps that allow you to input that data and there are some automated systems as well uh, that allow you to transfer data from an oral thermometer into the app then there's skin-based temperature uh, and there's a couple of ways a uh, couple of types of device out there there's um, skin-based temperature measurement under the armpit or, or by the bra strap um, or you can measure it on the wrist. In both those cases, in fact, external temperature is probably not as good as oral temperature at telling you what's going on in the ovaries. But of course, you're able with that technology to measure many more times than you can uh, with a single oral temperature. And through that and algorithmic techniques, you can tell when ovulation happened in the past. Um, the accuracy of that in terms of predicting fertile days is, a, is around about 89 percent um so uh, much lower accuracy than a, a well taken basal body temperature uh, measurement or in fact than than obvious sense which which has an accuracy of 99 percent for detecting uh, the date of ovulation and, and then there are can I, either... can I just ask a quick question sure, so, sure. so am i right in saying that when you take say a basal body or skin based um temperature that is actually after the point of ovulation. And then they use that data to predict in the future versus Ovusense that actually is doing it in a real time way. Is that correct? Um, that's a common conception of, um, of, in fact, of gynecologists as well, that they will tell you that the temperature rises after ovulation. In actual fact, what we found is it, it doesn't. It's just that the technology that you're using to measure that temperature rise is incapable of seeing the temperature rising as it happens. It can only see the rise after it's happened and therefore the belief that the temperature has risen afterwards as well. So in, in essence, what we're doing is we are seeing that in real time, as you say, um, if you've got, if, if it were the case that the skin or oral temperature was able to 
see that that rise as it's happening, then you could use that as well, theoretically, to predict what's happening within this current cycle. But unfortunately, you can't because you're not measuring the direct action of, of progesterone on the ovaries. You're measuring the body's um, subsequent reaction to it. Uh, and you'll know with skin, skin temperature, for instance, you often get an opposition of skin temperature to what's happening in the core because, uh, you know, you sweat to lose, uh, lose heat, for instance. Or if you've got aggressive air con, as I sometimes have. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And then how does it compare as well to some of the more traditional mechanisms? So, like, obviously, you've got the old school pee on the stick or cervical mucus or things like that. Yes. So uh, let's talk about the luteinizing hormone strips. Those are the ones where you pee on a stick. Um, those are extremely good for women that have no ovulatory issues. Um, they can only predict the onset of ovulation. So just like OvulSense predicts the onset of ovulation using the current cycle data, but they cannot confirm that ovulation has happened. And that causes a number of issues with women because you don't know whether the prediction was false or not. Um, if you have something like polycystic ovarian syndrome, unfortunately, uh, luteinizing hormone tends to peak at a different point within the cycle. And so you don't get an accurate prediction of ovulation using wow, luteinizing hormones tests. Yes, I mean, that, that is fairly well known. And to their credit, people like Clear Blue are actually fairly open about that. If You, you can see that on their own website. Uh, and it's well known that you get an acyclical response to luteinizing hormone. But the other thing that we see with a lot of our customers is they actually get no positive results with, a, with a, an OPK or luteinizing hormone test. And that's obviously very confusing because that's essentially saying to you that you're not ovulating when in fact, in reality, you just simply haven't got enough of a surge of luteinizing hormone in, in your urine to cause a positive result on one of those tests. Wow, that's really, really interesting. So can you just like, so I, I think quite a lot of, um, from, from what I've gathered from listening to our um, listeners and some of the questions, quite a few people, especially those that are interested in ovulation, do actually have polycystic ovaries. Um, and it was certainly even news to me that actually this LH surge that could be picked up by an ovulation stick doesn't necessarily mean that ovulation has happened. Can you explain the mechanics a little bit more of that, especially for someone that's got PCOS? Sure. In essence, what's happening is uh, when you have PCOS in particular, the four main reproductive hormones in, uh, in your cycle will not be behaving in the way that, that is expected. And what tends to happen is luteinizing hormone will peak much earlier um, than around ovulation. So as you'll know, when it's working properly, luteinizing hormone peaks 24 to 48 hours prior to the onset of ovulation. That's why it's a good predictor. With a woman with PCOS, so let's say she has a fairly regular 28-day cycle, um, and she does happen to ovulate somewhere around the middle, but let's say a little bit later, so day 16. Normally, uh, if she didn't have PCOS, on day 14, you'd expect a positive uh, urine strip result. For her, it's much more likely she'll get a positive result on day seven or eight, somewhere around there. Uh, and that's simply because the luteinizing hormone peak is happening earlier because the, uh, the reproductive hormones are out of sync uh, within the cycle. In fact, that's, you know, that's 
the effect of PCOS, not the cause of it, but it's a, it's a well-known manifestation of it. So that's the, the most common thing is that you'll get an early peak. Wow, that's fascinating. So that can be completely misleading. If you're peeing on sticks and you have PCOS, you could be getting it totally off. Sure. And in fact, it's fairly self-evident that it's unlikely that if you, particularly if you have PCOS, it's very unlikely you'll be ovulating on day 10. Yeah. Um, late ovulation is the most common um, sign with, with PCOS, um, you know, and very few ovulate early. So you can, you can pretty much know that's a wrong result. So um, also, we, ha- we haven't really talked too much about some people not ovulating at all. Now, how will Ovusense pick that up? Will it just not show any of this temperature rise? Will it just be basically flatlining, essentially? Uh, essentially, yes, although no woman really flatlines in her temperature. Um, it's very rare to get a, ni- you know, a nice, that's not a very nice thing. It's <laughs> very rare to get a flat line that looks completely flat. What tends to happen is the temperature bounces around a lot. That's the other reason, by the way, that... Um, oral uh, and uh, basal body temperature measuring and, and measuring on the skin is difficult because the, the temperature is varying so much at the surface of the body, slightly less within the body, but you will notice particularly with a woman with cyclical disturbance caused by, say, PCOS, she will have, uh, her temperatures will bounce around a lot, but you simply don't get this really steep rise that you expect with ovulation. The good news is that every woman's ovulation, uh, when there is a progesterone release as expected, the rise will be about the same for all women. And that's the really key thing that we've learned from the research that we've done. So you get a very similar slope. You get a very similar uh, rise of 0.3 or 0.4 degrees, something like that, uh, Celsius. And you also see that during the space of three to four days. So it's very rare that any woman that is ovulating whatever her ovulatory conditions, um, it's very rare that she'll not have that kind of pattern. Okay. Now, talking of that, you must see quite a lot of data on people's cycles. Um, What are some of the trends that you think you're starting to see in the data that's coming out that, and maybe this is the type of user you have, but what are some of the things that you're, you think you're seeing more and more of um, in the data you get? And why do you think that is? So we talked about late ovulation a lot already. That's, that's the most common trend, I would say. And I think that is caused by, yes, a higher prevalence within our user base of women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, but also caused by age. So I think it's quite likely now that we can infer that your cycle is sorry, your, your ovulation is likely to be later um, the older you are. Um, we are planning to publish more data on that um, soon, uh, within, within the next year or so. Uh, if you look at the pa- paper that we're just about to publish at the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, that very interestingly throws up a number of cycle patterns that we believe to be indicative of ovulatory disorders. Um, and... Particularly, we think we can now pick out a woman that has polycystic ovarian syndrome that has not yet had a diagnosis. Around 50% of women with PCOS, as you know, go undiagnosed because they they simply don't fit the the, the expected norm. Um, And uh, we also believe that we will be able to pick out uh, an increased risk of miscarriage from the cycle pattern that we're seeing. So both those things are really important, we think, 
for um, understanding the the science of ovulation moving forward. Uh, and those sort of trends that we're seeing in those patterns are very, uh, are very common. So what we've done is we've attached certain mathematical criteria to looking at those patterns. That's so fascinating. So talking of the miscarriage part, so I, I presume that obviously as we are getting older and as you say, we're seeing these, um, we're seeing ovulation happening later, that is an obvious potential red flag for higher miscarriage risk. And then would it be the same if somebody has, um, you know, what we were talking um, about earlier, where they effectively uh, have ovulation happen too close to the end of their cycle um, and, and this short luteal phase? Is that another um, area that could potentially indicate that you might be at greater risk of miscarriage? Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, that, that's without a doubt, and that's well established in the literature. The reason why OvulSense is so good in this case is because we are confirming the date of ovulation with 99% accuracy, so you know that that gap is real. So, obviously, if you've got much lower accuracy, your nine days may in fact be 11 days or 12 days, in which case you're probably fine. In our case, when we're saying it's, it's nine days or less, we really... Uh, mean that because it's yeah it's a it's a, it's a very accurate way of detecting data. So if I was an OvulSense user and I had realised that over a couple of cycles I was ovulating either very early or sorry if I was ovulating very late or I was having this short luteal phase, what would I do with that information? Is this the time that I would go and speak to my doctor and say, hey, you know what, this is what's been up. This is my concern. What do people typically do um, amongst your user base when they've had these things flag up? Well, we uh, we have an actively managed program of, of nurse consultation. So if you use Obisense for three months or more, or three cycles or more, if you happen to have long cycles, um, then we will give you a free nurse consultation. And what she will do is take you through what the pattern is telling us um, and then recommend as, as appropriate clinical intervention if, if, that's, if that's what's needed. Um, if you are a user simply looking at these things, then I would say well over half our users are anyway um, under the consultation of, of a primary or secondary um, physician. And in, the, in, you know, in both cases, um, the data that, that's being shown on a monthly basis is a useful way of understanding what's going on and why um, you know why somebody might not be con conceiving so absolutely if you get a pattern that looks abnormal or atypical then uh, it's and and it repeats so that's a very important point one, one cycle is not necessarily enough information but if that cycle pattern repeats then we absolutely recommend that you you go and consult the so, doctor so um just taking a step back and thinking about if i was to say have this short luteal phase and i had several cycles showing this and I went to my doctor what would typically be the way that that would be treated um, uh, progesterone supplementation is the most common treatment but it does depend very much on um, why you are getting that cycle pattern so in the case of polycystic ovarian syndrome probably if it hadn't been discovered previously then the first thing that you want to try and do is to bring ovulation somewhere back towards the middle of the cycle and that that can be done in a number of ways either with metformin um, or with supplements such as uh, inositol um, and 
uh, as you know, some women don't, don't have regular periods, so there may also be some uh, medication given in order to induce um, periods by, by the doctor. But you absolutely shouldn't take our advice for it or your podcast advice for it. You need to go and consult a clinician uh, about what's right for you because controlling that cycle is the sort of first thing, the first step on the route towards um, trying to have a successful pregnancy. And then, then if you do need supplementation, as I said, it's most likely to be with progesterone, but it depends on your yeah, circumstances. Absolutely. And obviously you mentioned the kind of general trend that's happening, which is we are getting older um, when we have kids. And one of the consequences, I suppose, is, as you say, we're getting these later cycles. Um, but do you think that there are other lifestyle things going on um, that are, in, you know, coming through in your data other than age? Or would you say that's really the kind of main thing that you're picking up? Well, I mean, I, I think generally um, the, you know, the more overweight you are, um, the chances are that you will have cycle disturbance. And that's a sort of cause and effect thing as well. So. We know that um, certainly in the case of obesity, obesity will cause um, cyclical disturbance and is more likely to lead to PCOS. Um, if likewise, if you, you know, even, even if uh, you have diabetes, but you are you know, a normal weight or the right BMI, then the chances are that that will also lead to, to cyclical disturbance. So um, that's, I suppose, a trend, although it's, it's fairly well known about. Um, but ageing is probably a much bigger trend in, you know, in the background population. I suppose the same could also be said in regards to BMI on the reverse. So obviously this kind of trend still to peers size zero to exercise like crazy um, and that side of things can also have an effect. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And then in fact, a lot of women with PCOS can be, uh, can in fact be underweight. That's, that's not uncommon as well. Um, so, yes, there are lots of lifestyle issues. Again, we'd, we've just um, started a, an epidemiological study which will investigate this specifically for our current user base, uh, and we hope to publish on that, um, as I said, within the next year or so. Um, and we've asked lots of issues, uh, sorry, lots of questions around lifestyle um, and, you know, smoking, um, alcohol intake, exercise, uh, BMI, obviously, yeah, and so on. Yeah, interesting. Um, and then, what? well, obviously, as you talked about, there's lots of interesting things in the future that your data is, is being used for. But what are the, some of the things that you think or you're focusing on in the kind of near future that you think we can do with this, this information and technology? So how can we move this forward further, I guess? Well, as I said, we, we believe that we have um, cycle patterns that we've now identified, which will be or assist with diagnosis of ovulatory disorders. The key thing is, the sooner you understand what your cycle's like, the, the higher the chance you have of pregnancy, because if you need treatment, then you get into treatment sooner. If you are simply timing sex at the wrong point in the cycle, then you will very much benefit from understanding when you ovulate. Um, and if you simply just, <laughs> if you simply reassure yourself that your cycle is normal i.e you are ovulating regularly then we often find that that simple fact alone does help um, with uh, increasing conception rates because it's it's about control of 
what's going on to your body that's the most important thing well that's the thing i mean in a world of chronic levels of anxiety i suppose knowing that something is at least happening as it should be or at least knowing something that's wrong but you can do something about it is actually often quite a powerful tool in uh helping people relax a little bit which is often really hard to do when it comes to conception particularly not happening immediately yeah absolutely Um, and what are some of the things that as CEO of Obvusense that perhaps has surprised you over the period of time that you've worked there? Um, I, th- I think the, the, the gen- general lack of knowledge of, of the individuality of each woman's cycle. Um, I guess I knew intuitively that, that we, we were essentially acting as if all women's cycles were likely to be the same. Um, because that's what we're taught at school. Um, but the reality is it seems to have been so ingrained in our approach to the whole area of conception. And indeed, when you, you, know, when you go on to talk about menopause, it's so ingrained in our understanding um, of the science that it's something that we very much need to reverse in order to improve both conception rates and, um, you know, and treatment for menopause moving forward. It's it's absolutely not the case that every woman's cycle is the same. That's what we've discovered. And that's, you know, that shouldn't be enlight- the, the enlightening bit of it, but it's the, it's the most important bit, I think, in terms of understanding how we yeah, move it's, forward. It's shocking to me, actually, that this just is such an unknown part, yet it's such a fundamental part. Why do you think it is that this has been the kind of received wisdom? Is it that it's just, a, you know, it's an average and it's resource and cost? based thing that it kind of it, it suits everybody to believe that it's roughly the same time and it's just too expensive and costly to educate people or, or what do you think the reason is well my glib answer is that the science was invented by me <laughs> um, but my slightly less glib answer is that i think we have never regarded conception as uh, in the same way as other medicine, because it's a natural process. And we have therefore accepted that we're going to treat um, infertility by trying to find out whether you, you are fertile by allowing you to go away and keep trying, uh, so-called expectant management. And the approach of expectant management was perfectly valid and uh, acceptable when the average age of conception was you know, early 20s, I started in the women's health 15 years ago and the average age was 25. Um, that, and that was, it was perfectly acceptable to, to uh, behave in a way that, that said, we're going to find out if you're going to be able to conceive or not by you going and trying to conceive and come back to us in a year's time and we'll start sorting it out. Now, the problem that we have now is that the average age of uh, a pregnancy in UK and the US is... 31 and and increasing still increasing and at the age of 31 your chances of being infertile are about 10 to 15 times sorry percent 10 to 15 percent higher than at the age of 25 so i believe that expectant management is no longer an appropriate way of trying to solve this particular problem we never saw it as a problem in the first place it now has become a demographic problem um, and if you are 31 or 35 or 37 and you start trying to have a, a baby, 
uh, and you're told to wait a year or you're told to wait six months, depending on the health system that you're in, that is probably, if you've struggled to conceive, six to months to a year wasted when you could have been doing something about that issue and giving yourself a higher chance of conception. Yeah, not to mention the fact that most of us get annoyed if uh, it says on Uber that it's going to be five minutes and not two minutes. I mean, our expectations nowadays are off the scale and our patient levels are really low. And I think often what I what I see is that when things don't happen immediately, and especially, as you say, when we're a bit older and the clock's ticking, it builds this vicious cycle of anxiety which can end up making things much, much harder anyway. And that's the kind of irony. So, you know, I completely agree with you on that. Now, one other question. You, you mentioned menopause. Um, and many of our listeners um, hopefully are not in that phase um, at this point. But is there a way that um, OvviSense can perhaps indicate that you might be getting early onset menopause or because we've obviously talked about ovulatory disorders, but can it be a flag for perhaps something like this? Uh, yes, there is a well-known cycle pattern um, associated with, with temperature, which is known as a slow rise. And the slow rise is potential indication of uh, diminished ovarian reserve and that in itself is is caused by um, perimenopause um, uh, again something that's not particularly well known is that that menopause happens actually with a great degree of variability in the background population so most women will accept and understand that sort of beyond the age of 45 that's when you might start to expect um, your ovarian reserve to diminish but in fact for some women it, it, it happens a lot sooner and there are um, genetic particularly genetic uh, issues associated with some women where the, it can happen in their 20s so understanding that that slow rise is happening uh, again just looking at the cycle patterns that you're able to see with obvious sense is really important to to understanding whether you should go and go and get that sorted sooner rather Absolutely. than later. Okay, so, and is that relate, related to, so when OvviSense um, obviously detects that, is that in any way, shape or form um, picked up on by the AMH? Because obviously that is what's um, traditionally known as a kind of indicator of a variant reserve, or is, or is this just something separate? Um, no, this is something where I, I would always recommend that you then go on and do an AMH test. I mean, the AMH test is a relatively new um, test. We used to just do FSH, um, and FSH is really not useful at all because it doesn't really give you any chance of reversing the effect or seeing it early enough, rather than a better, better way of putting it. Um, AMH gives you a chance of seeing it early enough and, because it gives some... Uh, an idea of how far down the line you are um, and this slow rise pattern well that's just an indication I would never say it was a diagnostic test for uh, diminished ovarian reserve or perimenopause or anything like that it, it requires follow-up but the whole point is if you don't know why you're not conceiving and you use our device you're going to be able to see through the cycle pattern some clues as to why that yeah, might be. Yeah that makes a lot of sense well we firmly believe the same as you do that knowledge knowledge of the individual is all powerful so that's that's great now um just one final question you've probably already answered it but from your perspective sitting in your role and sitting as long as you have in the kind of female fertility space 
and taking a step back, what do you personally think we can do better when it comes to fertility and having healthy babies? Um, we can try and conceive earlier in our life. Yeah. <laughs> um, that may not be a realistic uh, expectation, but it's certainly one that's important. We can educate ourselves better about um, what's actually going on during ovulation. We, you know, we hope to add to that science and that understanding with what we're doing currently. Um, we can monitor sooner than we would have done previously. So again, because we've treated everything with expected with expected management, we've kind of waited around before we start testing. Um, there's no reason why you can't start testing much sooner, be it, you know, blood test within a, a laboratory uh, based on a GP recommendation or, or the Obvisense device itself. Um, interestingly enough, I think we're seeing a degree of, or a higher degree of education in, in the younger users that we're seeing for our product. Um, and that's because I think there's a much greater trend towards understanding uh, your body now, particularly within the millennial um, uh, generation. So I think some of that's happening already. The chances of us actually trying to conceive earlier in life are probably pretty slim still uh, yeah. because of the way in which <laughs> we all grow up and try and, uh, you know, and try and make sure that we're financially secure before we start families. So um there are things we can do. Uh, well, on the, my... would you um, would you so would you say that you're in favour of things like egg freezing, which is obviously maybe this midway point between, um, you know, actually having kids sooner and um, and actually being able to do it. I, I think the danger of IVF in general and specific, specifically freezing of eggs is this belief that somehow uh, it's a catch-all the truth is that even with frozen eggs the older you get the chances of conception go down yeah um and i think understanding that is really important before we start saying that freezing eggs is a solution it's an, it's not a solution to anything it, it 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 is only a way of making sure that the eggs are around when your body may not be capable of producing them anymore but by that very nature, uh, just because you have them frozen and you can thaw them out and turn them into embryos um, with your partner's sperm or, or donated sperm, doesn't mean that your body is able to actually um, sustain a pregnancy with, with those embryos. So, again, that's about education to a certain extent. Um, so, yes, with caution, I think there, is, uh, there are advantages offered by some of the uh, ART uh, treatments out there, but we need to be very careful that we understand that the chances of success, whether it's natural or through ART, chances of a successful conception and pregnancy go down um, as you get older. Yeah, makes sense. So basically what you're saying is we need to educate ourselves, realise we're all individuals and be proactive with that information, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we couldn't agree with you more on that. So, uh, well, thank you so much. This has been super, super helpful. Um, and what we're going to do is put all the links to Obviousense, um up on the, the web. Um, and also, um, we're going to be testing out the product ourselves. 
So um, we couldn't be happier that uh, you share the same mantra that we do, that it's all about knowing your own body and being proactive and putting yourself in a better position. And hopefully um, this can help um, lots of people out there. So thanks for making a great product. And um, thanks for doing what you're doing. I think it's wonderful. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for speaking to me. All right. Take care.